This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. In the studio with me is Dr. Jen. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's an odd day today. We kicked all the usual crew out. Well, is it an odd day or is it a wonderful day? <laughs> They're going to love you when they come back, aren't they? <laughs> well, no, I wasn't trying to offend any of our usual wonderful team, but I'm very mm. excited by the three people who are sitting here with us today. Now, why don't you tell us about them? Because they are your students and you've been training them, which means if the show's crap, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jane. No, no pressure, guys. Yes, yeah, so um, Shane's been kind enough this week to let three of my amazing science <coughs> communication students from Uni Melb come on air and do the show. So, yeah, if it's crap, then blame me, I guess. Mm. But it won't be crap because these guys are awesome. And they have been training. They have been at the studio for weeks watching watching us, um, well, the other experts and me, <laughs> and I think they've picked up a few tips of what not to do. Yeah, I think they've learned exactly what not to do, yeah. so it should be absolutely so, fine. Cool. So, to introduce them, we have uh, Sophie, and we have Holly, and we have Cam, and today, folks, we're going to have a slightly different show. Normally, we have a number of guests, but today, due to um, uh, this uh, special program that Jen and I put on once a year with the students just to show how good communicators uh, can be trained up and teach science as well as those of us who've been doing it for a long, long time. Yeah, and just yeah. how important it is that our science students get the chance to practice their communication skills. Because if you can't talk about science, what the point, what's the point in doing it? Mm. So it's a more uh, content-rich show, I think, today than what we yep. would normally have. Um, so we're going to start off with some news. And to start us off, Holly, I think you're up first. I am. How's what it you going? So um, we're all talking about space exploration at the moment and I mean that's all well and good to go to Mars there but there are some uh, planets that I don't want to visit after learning about ice volcanoes so far far away between Mars and Jupiter is uh, between the two is this big old asteroid belt and the biggest object in that asteroid belt is this planet called Ceres who's a it's a dwarf planet kind of like old mate Pluto and um, on Ceres is this massive ice volcano called Ahuna Mons which is um, massive like half the size of Mount Everest and we've known about this guy since 2016. And so what this, what an uh, ice volcano is, cryovolcano, basically it's the same as a normal volcano. It sort of works in much the same way in terms of like the pressure and everything. But instead of erupting magma, it will erupt this sort of cryo magma, which is like water and all these other organic chemicals like ammonia and stuff. And, and so what it does is that it erupts it and then it will rapidly refreeze upon landing again so if you're there and this massive ice volcano is like going off you're just immediately going to be like an ice cube <laughs> so, so the opposite of a normal volcano yeah right exactly yeah. um but you know we only knew of this one ice volcano and scientists always wondered like why aren't there more like it would make sense that a planet would have multiple um but earlier this week this paper came out in nature astronomy talking about how they did fi- there were actually other vo- ice volcanoes on the planet but they've just um flattened out over time so they found 20 21 remains of old volcanoes so kind of like how glaciers flow on earth they sort of like under their own weight sort of expand out mm. these uh, ice volcanoes have sort of flattened down so if you can imagine like having a table and then pouring emptying out this bottle of honey and if you can imagine it will like slowly slump down and expand out that's basically what happened to these ice volcanoes um and so we were able to find you know like there are actually there they're just unrecognizable and so mm. 
you know, there's more and more ice volcanoes that we're finding. So um, I don't know. <laughs> I'm kind of content with Earth. I don't really want to visit any <laughs> other planets, particularly if they've got ice volcanoes. But yeah. yeah. I like the idea of ice volcanoes there. Mixes it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. No, not on Earth, which is sad. No, well, no, I'm kind but, of grateful. We have an atmosphere. Right. We have an atmosphere, right? That, yeah, well, exactly. That, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a bit sad. If we get rid of the atmosphere, we could have some ice volcanoes. Yeah, if we wanted. <laughs> That'd be worth it. Cam, yeah, what, yeah. what do you got for us, Cam? Well, um, I've got the inside goss on uh, Trump's 2020 election um, pitch. Uh, he's going to build a wall around Antarctica and get the penguins to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> They might do that. They might. Because it's damn windy down there. Yeah, they would. And they have to they have to huddle to warm the eggs. Mm. So I can imagine, you know, that might be something they'd go for. Yeah, exactly. It's more that likely than, than, They're more likely. than Mexico paying for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah. They're probably not in as much debt, so that's a good start. <laughs> um, this is actually an idea that's popped up in the in uh, this week where some scientists have looked at the possibility of building some walls to hold back glaciers that are flowing off, for example, Antarctica, um, to try and stem sea level rise. So the idea is that um, you would build a wall or some sort of mound that stops the warm water from getting in underneath Mm. the glaciers that are flowing into the sea where a lot of the melt is actually happening. So a lot of the, the, the melting of these glaciers is actually from underneath as the warm waters attack them rather than... In Antarctica, at least, where the warm air is melting from above, or mm. isn't in the case of the cold air there. So they've actually looked at this, um, modelled what effect it might have. Now, it's a pretty big exercise. They're talking about even for something like a 30% chance of success, you're looking at engineering projects on the scale of um, the Suez Dam um, and, and some other projects. You're looking at tens of billions of dollars worth just to do these sorts of engineering projects in accessible places um, like in China and and, Mm. and, and Dubai. Add the additional complexities of of doing it in Antarctica and you're looking at a lot of money there. So, But they've looked at it. It can be done. Potentially, they're not saying doing it immediately. We're talking, you know, 100 years hence or something. And they also very clearly make the point that it doesn't address all the other nasties in fossil fuel pollution, um, your sulphur dioxide and so on. It doesn't address ocean acidification and it also doesn't address the warming from above if we keep putting um, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. So well, it's, it's, it's interesting because there's that issue of um, increased uh, or reduced friction because of this subsurface melting. Mm. So you, you, it's like being on a water, water slide, essentially. You know, the, the ice sitting on the top just slides down on this nice, smooth surface with the water under it. And if you can, you know, you have to basically either remove that by cooling it down or... or Build a wall. Precisely, yes. <laughs> Build a wall. Yeah. I'd go for just a few spikes. Just spike it, you know, stop them. That's, yeah, that's, a, big, that's a big program, though, a big program of activity. It's not something mm. you do in a short space of time. No, mm. not at all. Very interesting. Sophie? Well, there's been a lot of talk about printing organs and in, in trying to grow organs in, in all sorts of ways, especially because uh, stem cells have been quite a huge thing for the past couple of years. Um, but now research have finally found stem cells to grow uh, bones. Um, they've been looking at which type of cells could potentially become bones. Um, and up until now, they haven't been successful. It always turned out to be a muscle or nerve cell or mm. something different. Um, but now they finally found pure stem cells differentiating into um, into bones. And they were able to grow these bone plates. Really, really interesting and really awesome 
because what if you could build bones so you could sort of if you have a fracture sort of make sure that the fracture goes back together with new bone material. Um, what is even more interesting about this is that they found out that these markers in the cells um, are also found in some fat cells. So you can turn fat cells into bones. Well, that and sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But especially there's a lot of people getting uh, fat suction, you know, all the beauty. Yeah, yeah. Talk about people don't want to be too large, although everything goes. Um, but a lot of this fat is just discarded as medical waste. Imagine taking all of these fat cells and turning them into bones for people who have uh, bone de uh, degeneration or bone diseases. I love the fact that the phrase big bones finally is going <laughs> to yeah. have some, some cred. <laughs> I'm just big boned. Yeah. They just, just haven't been converted yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just haven't been converted yet. Yeah, it's not a problem. Yeah. Oh, dear. Wow, that's amazing stuff. It, it, this, this is interesting to me because we often, because within that area of the spine and so forth is the source of stem cells as well. So yeah. we don't, I didn't realise that there wasn't that there wasn't a clear path to bone from stem cells. No, you would you would imagine just going in there, finding stem cells, and expose it to something that would turn it mm. into uh, bone stem cells, but just haven't been able to locate them. But they found them in mice. That yeah. gave them a direction where to look for cells with this marker in it, and it turns out fat cells also have it. So like there's it. a lot of potential there. Yeah, this is, you know, Probably like, a few years yeah. out, but... This is promising. Yeah. I think, too, not just breaks, but also when people have osteoarthritis and yes. other bone density problems. So, I mean, even women, when they're pregnant, their bone density drops quite significantly for a period and then it, it rejuvenates. Hmm. So, you know, it might be that uh, when people are more susceptible to breaks and so forth, you could give them a bit of a stem cell dose. And, yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, it's science fiction at the moment, but, you know, that's the sort of thing where this would go, especially when people are more susceptible to breaks as they get older. Yeah, for, say, uh, astronauts coming back home with weak bones. Yeah. Could help them. Yeah. Well, or, or silly people that slip in the shower, like my partner. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, there's plenty of uses for that, you know. Fast track that. that. Maybe take out some of that metal screw so you put yeah, into people at the moment. Yeah. 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 Nice plenty stuff. of uses for that sort of stuff. Yeah. Sounds good. Three. Triple. We have uh, our student group today doing this show for us uh, from Jenny's SciComm class at Melbourne University. And uh, Holly is here. She's going to tell us all about video game addiction. Holly, what's going on? Yes. Are you, you okay? Yeah, I'm all good. So I, well, I, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm, and if I were, I'm reformed now. So, because <laughs> I always wondered, you know, in my undergrad, I used to kind of skip class, stay home, play games. It was a bit naughty, you know. But uh, <laughs> you, you realize why do your lectures are sitting yeah, right I know, here? I know. I don't anymore, right? But, I, I, I uninstalled the games, so I don't I don't do it anymore. But um, you know, not everyone finds it that easy, right? To to uninstall. Like I don't know if you saw the article earlier in the week. It was um, about these. Uh, since January, there have been two hundred divorces that quoted Fortnite, the game, as oh, a yeah. reason for divorce. Like, yeah, Fortnite's like, big. Yeah, 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 it's a terrible game. I don't I don't recommend it, but <laughs> personally. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, it's like a big problem. People can't you know uninstall or stop playing. So anyway, and I always it, and it's free. And it's free. Like, that's even worse, yeah, right? Yeah, it's like free drugs. You just hand them out in the street corner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's and that's the problem, right? And so, yeah. And so I kind of always wondered if I ever, you know, qual qualified for it. And, and if I did, or, you know, what can I do to not, you know, be like that again? So I sort of uh, dug into what the World Health Organization referred to as gaming disorder. So they sort of classified this disorder earlier this year. And the way that you can qualify for it is basically for a period of 12 months or more, you have to have, uh, ha exhibit these three 
characteristics. So one, a lack of control over gaming habits. Two, prioritizing gaming over other interests. So like, you know, eating or sleeping. Like if you, I don't know if you guys... Going to lectures. Yeah, going to lectures. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. Um, So maybe I hit number two. But, um, you know, those like, uh, there was like that story a few years ago about that um, South Korean boy who died because he was like playing video games and stuff for three days. Yeah, yeah. So like stuff like that, right? Like Um, he starved himself to death. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, he went into cardiac arrest, I believe. (laughs) Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just, just love it. No, it's true, right? It's like that's so severe, right? And that's, I, I guess, mm. what prompted them to want to sort of classify this disorder. Um, and the third one was to um, continue to game despite negative consequences, <laughs> I guess, including things like cardiac arrest. But anyway, so obviously it's really bad. And so, I mean, but these are also quite broad, I would say, right? Like, I feel like there's a lot of people that play games that, you know, this, these are subjective. Like, to what point um, mm. do you lack control, you know? Um, and a lot of the studies sort of looking at this um, are only really looking at prevalence. So they say, oh, you know, between 1% and 5% of people have it or whatever. Um, it's associated with poor nutrition. <laughs> it's associated with a decrease in physical activity, like, of course. Yeah. Um, and it's associated with different things like depression, ADHD, whatever. Um, but, of course, correlation doesn't equal causation. And, yep. you know, all of these studies are all well and good, but I think, you know, the next step is to sort of try and understand the biology. And so what researchers are trying to do now is, you know, now that they've classified this disorder, they're hoping that it will attract more funding for them to go off and sort of understand the underlying neuroscience as to how it occurs. Um, and so there, ha- there were a few studies that I dug into because I was like, okay, well, I want to understand what's going on. So the few ones that I could find seem to liken it to gambling disorder. So... Mm. It's very similar in the, in the way that it works in the brain. So, you know, when you're playing video games, you're releasing dopamine, they found. And so, you know, much in the same way that uh, occurs in gambling. And so dopamine is a neurotransmitter, right? And the, it's called that because it transmits, <laughs> it transmits messages between cells. And so the way that it does that is say that you've got, you know, two cells and there's like a gap between them. And, you know, the dopamine wants to travel from cell A to cell B. So cell A releases some amount of dopamine and then cell B sort of has these like little, you know, I think of them like fishing poles, like receptors that, you know, fish out this dopamine out of this gap. And then what isn't taken up by cell B is recycled back into cell A and that resets and that happens like multiple times a minute. So that's like normal functioning dopamine. But what they think, and this is like the current working theory, we're not really, you know, there's more research that needs to be done. It's still an active area of research, right? But um, the working theory we have is that that, you know, the more that you do this behaviour that induces this dopamine, the more dopamine there is, the, the you know, cell B kind of like freaks out and is overwhelmed by all the dopamine and so that it actually reduces the number of receptors mm. or the, the fishing poles and then that results in, you know, the dopamine having less of an effect on your brain, right? But then what that results in is, you know, the behaviour of you wanting more for the same high, right? right. So it's like yeah. that threshold of that sensitivity and I, it kind of reminds me of... um you know, like coffee, like, so our semesters are like 12 weeks long and in week one, you have like one coffee a day and that's all good. And then, oh, one coffee's not enough. Now I need two, now I need three. And, you know, like you slowly increase and by the time you hit exam period, you're like <laughs> five coffees a day, you know. And, and so, three or four no-dose tablets. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then it's, you know, like the same amount doesn't have the same effect. That's yeah, kind of the idea yeah. here. And, um, and, and that's sort of the way that dopamine's working, and which is a, quite different to the way that people sort of view it. I mean, I feel like, 
you know, people like, I don't know, you imagine like your nan, my nan anyway, I don't know about other people, but, you know, oh, you know, like cocaine acts on dopamine and video games acts on dopamine, therefore dopamine is video game. sorry, um, video games are cocaine and therefore you don't do video games, you know. And it's like, well, no, and, you know, and they sort of associate this dopamine as this um, pleasure hormone or whatever, but, it, but it's not. It's about inducing a behavioural adaption that makes you pursue something more. Um, So the way I also think about that is like, if you think back to the first time you ever had a piece of cake, right? You have the cake, it feels fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was good, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're like, whoa, this is a delicious cake, right? And so what dopamine does there... Actually, it wasn't that great. No. (sighs) Disappointing. Well, for for argument's sake, (laughs) let's say that this was a delicious cake, right? And and the way that dopamine works is it sort of... it. makes you remember how good it tasted so that you pursue it again. Yeah. And so, you know, we sort of understand how it works on a behavioural level and this sort of underlying biological level. And sort of what I've come away from this understanding is that it's about a threshold. So whether it be, you know, and there's lots of things that, you know, induce dopamine. So things like um, using your phone, Netflix, shopping, eating, exercising, you know, all these things. It's it's about a sort of a threshold or a sensitivity. Mm. And so, you know, now that I've, I've reinstalled my games <laughs> recently, oh, I, I miss yeah. playing. Uh, you know, I like the social aspect. It's good for stress release. Uh, but I've got a thesis due in eight weeks. <laughs> so I need to be really careful about how much I'm using. And sort of, you know, understanding this biology, maybe it's important for you know, people to monitor how much you're using it. Just be mindful, like, mm. of how much do, you're doing in activity. Do we know, Holly, how... So, you know, when you get that effect of the dopamine receptors mm-hmm. from one thing, like gaming, how does it affect the way dopamine works for other things? Like, is it across the board? So once I stuff up my cells using gaming, does that mean I'm going to need, you know, more other... More cocaine. Yeah, more cocaine. (laughs) That was not what I was asking. It depends on the area of the brain, I think, mostly. (laughs) And and this is just sort of like a working theory. Like, we're not too confident in the way that anything's working. Um, But that's the idea, is generally, like, if you decrease your dopamine levels in a certain area of the brain, the only way you're going to increase that again is the sort of, like... Cold so turkey, I, I got basically. very excited at the start because I thought I might you were leading towards the World Health, Health Organization putting something forward that would allow me to take a day off <laughs> from work to feed my addiction <laughs> gaming, like a legitimate health concern. You know, I could bring up my boss and say, look, I've been playing Fortnite since 2 a.m. I can't, can't come in. Can't come in. It's a disorder. I can't come in. I've got a disorder. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, no, I, I mean, that's like, I guess the other reason why they introduced it is to sort of allow healthcare professionals to help people mm. but I don't think it's quite the, that far yet that we can <laughs> take yeah. days off for well, it, we'll, we'll get unfortunately there. Yeah, we'll get there, but it sounds like everything else, in moderation not too yeah, bad. well exactly, yeah. that's Just the conclusion don't, don't play it for three days straight until you give yourself a cardiac arrest well. <laughs> uh, you are listening to Triple R, this is a science show if you've accidentally tuned in, apologies but it's fun. Uh, no, we have a, we're having a great time here. We have uh, Sophie now who's going to talk about uh, Homo sapiens. Is that like people? Yeah, something <laughs> like that. I've heard that term before. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna expand a bit on that. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so all the video game addiction is uh is more of a first world problem. I'm gonna turn the time back a bit and go back in time just to sort of have some some understanding of how we came to be the only. Um, species of our kind on the planet. Oh, right. That yeah, can play yeah. video games. <laughs> that can play video games and, and die from it. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Um, We're evolved. <laughs> yeah. We've definitely evolved. Yeah. Devolved. Yeah. You can call it that. Yeah. But we're trying to imagine a world where we were not alone, where we were not the mm. only human species. What, would we even know if we were the only one? Or if, mm. would we even know if there's more? Is there more now? Well, mm. 
consider this thought as we go back in time because the human evolution started already six billion years ago. But I'm going to flash forward a bit to the more exciting part about 150,000 years ago when we are on the third wave of migration. Um, this is the migration of Homo sapiens to the rest of the world. Right. Before this, Homo sapiens was sort of located in Eastern Africa, um, but decided to leave. Now, it's really important to stress that they didn't sit by the campfire, thought, I'm going to leave, I'm going to go to Europe. It's not like this. It, it yeah, took yeah. a couple of thousand years Yeah, yeah, before. I've seen the brochure and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a Europe's long travel. Good. Yeah, you yeah. look good. That ice yeah, we'll go there. Backpacking really trip, you know. Ice age is yeah, I'm, getting, I'm getting eaten by lions here. They've got nothing like that in Europe. I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but at the time um, Homo sapiens started migrating, Europe was already populated by Neanderthals. Right. And most of Asia was populated by different um, groups who evolved from uh, from Homo erectus. Um, and there's a lot of different human species, and we only know uh, so many of them, but there's definitely more. Just We just need the evidence to support mm. it. Um, because why wouldn't there be? But the interesting thing is that when uh, the Homo sapiens started to migrate, um, the other species went extinct. Wow. Yeah. So we it, just, it sounds like us. Yeah, it sounds like <laughs> yeah. us, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, like... A different group went extinct at different uh, times, but uh, about 50,000 years ago, a group called Siloensis disappeared, and the Denisovans shortly after. Neanderthals in Europe disappeared 30,000 years ago, and the last known group to disappear is the Florensis, about 12,000 years ago. Mm. So we've been alone for about 12,000 years, what we know of at least. Mm. Um, and there's two different theories to why this is. So the first one is interbreeding, that we met these other species, got along with them, live alongside with them, probably didn't even know that we were different from them. We were sexually interested in them and got <laughs> fertile offspring. So we just sort of absorbed these other species, if you can call it that. Or just, we, you sounds know, like merged. We, sounds like we bred them out. No. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. Well, we are still the only one, right? Yeah, that's but, it. It's, it's weird, isn't it? So for some reason, we had an advantage. Our genetics had some advantage over them. That, maybe that maybe led to us surviving more often. Maybe, maybe. Um, the other theory, though, is the one that have been um, present for the longest time, and people have believed more in for a very long time because it really goes well with how we like to see ourselves. That we were too different. We were probably smarter. We were probably more hostile and sort of annihilated all the others. As soon as we saw them, just sort of made spears. Got yeah, yep. um, and we like to believe that we were a lot smarter than them because our beautiful big brains. Yeah, turns out Neanderthals have bigger brains than we did. We like really? to see them as these cavemen, short, dense, strong, but not really intelligent. Well, mm. you can't really go about that that way because their brains were bigger, so there's a fair chance mm. they're just as intelligent or even more. Maybe there was mm. just more of us. Yeah, maybe. Wow. Yeah, that's the thing. Mm. Maybe there's just more of us. Um, yep. But in 2010, new evidence came to light where because we mapped the Neanderthal genome. It turns out if you compare it to the human genome, one to four percent of uh, Europeans, new, uh, living Europeans' DNA contains um, Neanderthal DNA, hmm. which is pure evidence that we probably mixed and we did yeah. the interbreeding. We didn't just go and kill them off, all of them. Yeah. Um, and then shortly after, uh, the Denisovan genome was mapped and compared to the human genome, and up to 6% are found in Indigenous Australians. So definitely mm. did some interbreeding there. But mm. maybe mm. at some point the gap just... At one point the gap was not... 
big enough for us not to be able to to intermix and all these things. But at one point, we might just have separated just enough for us to be two different to do this. Mm. Because if we went with theory one, the interbreeding, the fraction of um, other species' DNA and our DNA would be much larger if we had sort of merged with these mm. other species. Mm. So it's just and a few. Just, yeah. just a few or just a very long time ago. Mm. Yep, um, yep. But so you, you mean that uh, a long time ago as... Because that's one of the issues with two different species is they can't, can't interbreed. Yeah. And so there might have been a period where we were similar enough to interbreed, but yeah. then over time that stopped. Yeah, so, so we know yeah. that both Neanderthals and, and Homo sapiens are from the same um, sort of lineage. They mm. both evolved from <coughs> Hyalopagensis. Yeah. Um, but not completely sure about the Denisovans. Um, and there's not not enough evidence to support that they might even be a Homo erectus or from a completely different lineage. So that's kind of interesting, especially because um, just the other day, uh, new uh, evidence came where they found a bone fraction of a 13-year-old girl living um, in the Denisovan area. Turns out her parents were Neanderthal and Denisovan. So uh, the first evidence of one hybrid. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And and it's really interesting to, to look at because, first of all, it goes with the whole interbreeding thing mm. and that we could live alongside each other and we did mix all these things that we don't like to believe. So the interesting thing about that for me is, <clears throat> excuse me, there's um, just the statistics of that, right? So mm. what is the chance of finding that particular individual exactly. if that interbreeding was rare? Because we don't have many... Um, remains of no. these various um, people. So, like, the chance of us finding a remain... And finding a hybrid. A yeah. hybrid, mm. one mother, one father from two different groups, if if that was really rare to me is, like... Exactly. I was going to swear, but <laughs> really low. Um, whereas, whereas if it was more common, then you could say, okay, maybe, maybe one in ten of these yep. skeletal remains that we find would be like that. Even that statistically is getting pretty nasty. Yeah. But it sounds like it's, it's probably higher than we yeah, would expect. Yeah, so if we can find it now, mm. so many years later, yeah. well, there's a fair chance this happened a lot more yeah. than we thought. Yeah, exactly. And maybe there's other, there are other reasons to why the fraction of the, the other species' DNA is so low in, mm. in Homo sapiens now. Mm. Um, but it sort of leads to the thought again, did they know they were different? Yeah. Could they tell apart? Because we know that we've looked different. I think the um, there's something about the Tibetans that they have good... Um, Good ability to to carry oxygen in high altitude. Don't know how that completely mm. works, but that's mm. a, one of the Denisovan specialties, which is not a Homo sapiens specialty. So we sort of took that thing. So we know for sure that that's the mix that helps us get better. Mm. And as you said earlier, it might just have we got the stronger gene pool in the end. Mm. But if we don't know we're different, although we might be slimmer and, and more agile compared to say Neanderthals or Denisovans, well. We might just we didn't yeah. maybe didn't even care. But if you if you just look at the range in one species, yeah. is that range greater than the difference between the two species? And yeah, exactly. There have to be a pretty big difference between two species for that not to you know if one species was all below four feet tall, I'd say yeah okay yeah. you might be able to tell them apart. But but you know the range in one species is so so large. Yeah, yeah, it'd and be if, hard to and that. Yeah, exactly, and it also sort of gets you to think that. Now, are, are we are we alone? Like not mm. in the alien terms, but <laughs> more like would we know if there was a different species yeah. sort of evolving at the moment? Mm. And if say we there was this location on Earth that no one knew about, and in isolation, another species evolved. 
yeah. would we even leave it be or would we just, you know, take it and start experimenting, yeah. have a look at how things um, work? I'm pretty sure we do the latter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what we do. That's yeah. kind of what we do, yeah. yeah. Homo sapiens, we're good at that. Jen thinks I'm in the air as well. She said it to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, are you, are you European? Do you have European genes? Well, I've got red hair, so... Well, well then maybe that's a fraction of you being Neanderthal. Yeah, and anyway. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that we have bigger brains. Yeah. So, well, there you go. Not damn. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Sophie. That's really interesting stuff. I love it. Uh, Cam, over to you. You're going to tell us a bit about cognitive bias. Mm, I'm, fact, a bit, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit worried about this story. Yeah, I think we all should be, really. Um, um, <laughs> Unlike Sophie, I'm looking forward now rather than looking back. And uh, in particular, I suppose we've often thought about thinking World War III has for decades been thought about something might be fought with nuclear weapons. But, well, perhaps it might be something that's fought in cyberspace mm. rather than um, or even in just normal space. You know, we've got the Donald has set up the Space Force as a new um, branch yeah, of the Space Armed Force. Forces. I love that. Yeah, yeah Space Force, right. yeah. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just the name, it makes me excited. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I want to be a member of Space Force. Yeah, it's a great, <laughs> logo, great logos <laughs> around Wouldn't as well for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so maybe we won't actually be fighting over fighting for land. We might be fighting for each other's minds in future. Hmm. So uh, an example that sort of highlighted earlier this year was a couple of papers came out. One was focused on Australia. One was focused more on the US, where um, there were Russian trolls putting uh, basically out there pretending to be people from, from Australia or from people in the US in the case of um, uh, the, the other paper that came out. In the Australian case, around the time that um, the the Malaysian Airlines plane was downed over Ukraine, Australia was... Oh, yeah. Yes, Australia, the Australian government was, I suppose, standing up to the Russians who were sort of key suspects as being part of that. Mm. Um, mm. You, you might remember, you know, Tony Abbott saying he was going to shirt front Vladimir Putin. <laughs> this was... Uh, Around, around that time as well, we also see a bit of a, a spike in anti-Australian government tweet, tweet activity, and that was traced back to these uh, Russian trolls um, in, in um, activity that was in, uh, looked at afterwards. Mm. Um, in particular, there was a paper that was put out uh, this year analysing that, it, uh, it, and it was... From the same, I suppose, pool of tweets that were also examined in a similar paper that was released uh, looking at the United States, and there the subject wasn't so much um, the downing of the MH17, but it was actually about vaccinations, which doesn't on the face of it really have much of a, um, I suppose, national security angle, but it was very much polarised, and a lot of the tweets were really um, based on you know, really strongly polarised language, looking at, uh, you know, for example, constitution and freedom sort of language that, that's mm. really beloved of the right in the US, but also um, similar sorts of language targeting the left. And I was really trying to stir up a lot of antagonism and, and probably, maybe, it's hard to say, undermined public confidence in vaccination, so it may have had mm. a, a public health impact. Um but at the end of the day, because it was so polarised, you'd, you'd, you'd imagine it probably didn't do a lot to shift allegiances. People were probably already in one camp and it probably just strengthened that rather than right. um, shifted people. So on the face of that, you might say, well, what's the value of that? If you go back a few years, there are a few uh, researchers at Cambridge who actually put out a paper that looked at... the. the uh, 
got some people to do some sites, um, some personality tests, and they also looked at their publicly available at the time social media activity, their likes and so on. And they were, the fa- were able to find that just looking at their Facebook likes and so on, they were able to get a really good insight into the personality and uh, that were revealed in the actual personality tests they, mm. they did. So things like you know, people have probably heard of the five traits. Oh, the things big like five. The big yes, five, I'm exactly. Familiar. Openness and extroversion and neuroticism and so on. Yeah. And just looking at public um, Facebook likes, they were able to get pretty much the same findings as getting these people to do, the, the volunteers that did the personality tests. Wow. Mm. So they're finding yeah. social media actually gives you a really good insight into people's minds. Mm. Again, that's not necessarily shifting minds, but it does give you a really good way in to what makes people tick. Yeah, it makes uh, marketing companies very happy. Yeah, exactly. it's like a good way to measure I it. I feel right? like I should change, like start liking stuff that I not You don't actually would. like? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just to yeah. throw them off a bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Confuse them. Yeah. yeah. And was like, like all those little bunny rabbit photos and stuff. <laughs> in fact, Hello Kitty was one of the things that I think uh, yeah. I found was um, really indicative of, of a lot of these of traits. Of agreeableness? Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> Let so, me yeah. guess. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and some really surprising things in there. I mean, um, sexuality, even if people weren't sexual preferences, even if people weren't liking specifically um, pages about marriage equality or something like that, other sorts of likes, like Britney Spears and... Um, Wicked the Musical was actually <laughs> able to, when they looked at the the survey responses of these people, the personality tests and so on, the um, were actually asking these sorts of questions and, mm. and wasn't necessarily showing up in the Facebook profile. They were able to really accurately predict these sorts of things. Mm. So it's it's a really strong insight, and it's actually that approach that Cambridge Analytica then adopted, mm. which um, has then since subsequently become very. Uh, so sort of prominent in both the the US presidential elections, the yeah. uh, the the Brexit vote in the UK, and so on. So this has enabled people to gain insights into people and target their advertising very closely. So this is also drawing on some research that came out probably about a de- decade ago, where uh, and has fed into this whole behavioural economics field. And, uh, and and nudging people in, in certain directions. Some of it can be really quite positive. It's about, you know, perhaps nudging people towards recycling, whether they might not ordinarily do. They think, oh, yes, if you do this, uh, or, um, everyone else is recycling, and people think, oh, okay, yeah, I should do. Um, mm. So it's a, it can have some potential mm. positive effects, but it's the same underlying thing about our biases in our mind where we think about um, our, our two systems of thinking um, where we have this sort of system one approach and system two approach that uh, a couple of psychologists came up with uh, and had developed over the years. And this sorts of trolling and really targeted political advertising is starting to address that that mode of thinking that tends to be automatic and based on our just underlying biases and trying to bypass the more rational, considered thinking that we do. Hmm. Uh, so what this really points to is, well, I think a lot of us in recent times have been told we need to check our, bi- uh, check our privilege when we're thinking about <laughs> yeah. how we look at a lot of issues. Well, I think we really need to start thinking about we need to check our biases because <laughs> people are looking to really exploit those. Yeah, their the, own unco- the unconscious biases. Exactly, yeah. our yeah. unconscious biases yeah. um, to sell us either an, an ideology 
or a product. Yeah. So I was in the supermarket the other yeah. day and uh, with a friend, and and I was buying a particular product, and um, there was a you know a cheap brand one, and then there was a brand that I knew, and I I put the cheap one back and grabbed the brand that I knew, and this person said, "Why are you why are you buying that one?" And I couldn't answer, but mm. I was pretty sure about it. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure I made the right decision. Yeah. So, got, someone's messing with me there, Cam. Exactly, yeah. exactly. They've probably looked at your Facebook profile. Yeah, because I, t- I talk a lot about sugar in the Facebook profile. Yeah, exactly. well, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So much for free will, though. Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm right. a bit older, though, so I yeah. still use MySpace. But. <laughs> yeah. Does that still exist? Oh, dear. Now, um, <laughs> and, and I actually saw a bit of research um, in the last week or so that um, actually even looked at, you know, so much for free will. It's actually looked at... Or the, people were able to make people think they originally thought something else. So they were taking basically attitudinal surveys of people, what people thought about stuff, doesn't really matter what it was. And then later on, so a week later, they were telling them they actually answered the other way around. Mm. And they actually convinced themselves that they had and they argued in favour of the opposite to what they'd said <laughs> oh, <really>? originally. <laughs> yes. So um, I, I think... That. I think this might have been researched out of Denmark, actually. But, oh, uh, well, there you um, go. So it's, it's, so it's actually... Well, it must be true if it's yeah, out of Denmark, because yeah, yeah. I have a, you know unconscious bias that stuff from Denmark is really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's sitting right here. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, where are you from, Sophie? Denmark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're all good. <laughs> so, yes, um, it, it, a lot of it really does question the idea of, of free will mm. and... Um, uh, and whether we're actually making rational decisions a lot of the time. Yeah. So scary stuff. It is certainly. So you do not you do not want to put yourself in an MRI, a functional MRI machine, have someone ask you a question, and work out when you know the answer, because you'll find that uh, your brain works that long before you're aware of it. There That's you go. unconscious. Mm. Scary stuff. Yeah, there's some really <laughs> interesting, there's some really interesting work on that. It's scary stuff. So unconscious. Mm. Thank you, Cam. Interesting stuff. Three. Triple. We've got a bit more news to get through before we end the show. Holly, we're going to start with you. What else has been floating your boat? Excellent. Well, I mean, you know, all the news stories lately are all about, you know, the baddies, the bad guys doing the bad things, but we never, the good guys never catch the bad guys. Well, recently, uh, well, earlier this week, there was this paper that came out. um, They had exposed Africa's three largest elephant poaching cartels. So, Mm. you know, they poached them for ivory. Um, so, you know, that's like 40,000 elephants a year that are killed for that. It's like a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, and so it's really nice that, you know, we're able to, you know, catch the three largest cartels, but using DNA, nice. DNA clues. So I yep. thought that was really cool. So this uh, paper, yeah, that came out a few days ago uh, was this uh, collaboration between the US, Kenya and Malaysia. And so what they do is they were able to take... DNA samples from the ivory tusk from the elephant. So, you know, they found they would find a shipment at a location, take a DNA sample, take the DNA sample from the warehouse. So they do like warehouse raids um, in different mm. places in mm. Africa. They find them, do a DNA sample, and then compare that to the DNA samples of the elephants in the wild, right? And so then they can connect all the dots and sort of draw this story of like, you know, they took the animals from here or they poached them here they exported them here and they went to these countries, you know, because if you imagine it, it's like, you know, these poachers will poach a whole family of elephants that are all living together, right? Mm, And mm. then they will go and distribute their, you know, tusks out throughout the world. So, you know, there's different... So, for one example, they had 
these ivory shipments going to all these places like uh, Sri Lanka, Taiwan, Philippines, Thailand, Singapore, Uganda, and they were able to trace that back to warehouses in Ken Kenya and Uganda, and then they found that those elephants were actually from uh, Tanzania. I think that's how you say it. Tanzania. <laughs> yeah, yes. Right, it's close um, enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but they were able to sort of, like, you know, picture this journey. Um, and and in, with that information, now we can focus uh, the law enforcement, you know, in the mm. areas where they're mm. being poached. Um, but as well, you know, if we find an individual who's caught poaching or caught with some ivory that they're going to sell, based on the DNA sample of the task, you can actually link him in with the rest of the network of all the poachers and sort of identify who's working together. Mm. So I think that's really cool. You know, as someone who works in human genomics, I think it's really exciting to see DNA um, sequencing being applied to something that the, isn't human. The thing I love about that is a couple of things, really. There's, there's this idea that, first of all, you know, some people are selling old pieces of ivory. Yeah. Um, but actually, they're not old. They've been recently collected, you know. And so yeah, the, yeah. the ability to distinguish between those two and say, no, no, no this was well, just done well, last yeah. week, you know, when we've been stamping this out. But the other thing is I heard this great idea, and I'm not sure whether this has progressed, but if you have an understanding of the DNA um, of the ivory that, you know, mm. where it comes from, I think there was this concept that uh, I can't remember who was working on it, but the idea that what you would 3D print Mm. identical replicas and flood the market with them wow. so that the value of ivory went to zero. Oh, that's great. And, I like and, but that But you wouldn't idea. be able to distinguish between the real product yeah. and the actual product because essentially you're just cloning material. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. so you could actually make exact replicas, like exact genetic replicas yeah. of these real ivory tusks, flood the market with them so they're worth nothing. Yeah. And it's like, it's like the diamond that, trade. You know, I mean, great. diamonds are very easy to make in the lab. They're yeah. very easy to make in the lab, but, 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 but you can't actually sell them. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're yeah. Lab-made diamonds are more perfect than the ones you find in the wild, um, but you can't sell them. They're worth nothing. Yeah. But you could, if, if that became allowable, you could remove the diamond trade completely. Mm. Um, and the same with, with this, this ivory trade. You could yeah, just knock it really out. Good. They're just worth nothing, right? And yeah. Because I can buy one for five bucks. It's yeah. So why would you poach them? Why anymore, would you poach right? them anymore? Yeah. You know, it's, it's this this I think this whole DNA stuff around around uh, conservation of animals is really important. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of work being done it's there. Really it's really exciting. Mm. Thanks yeah. so much, Ollie. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like the way that that's really getting up to the the top of the the um, the pecking order as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some quite complex social issues. Yeah, on the ground there where you've got yeah. people with, with you know, dealing with poverty and, and mm. looking for mm. livelihoods. But this is really getting at the the big the, the big, big players, players, right? Exactly. Yeah, so that's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cam, yeah. what do you got? Um, well, I've got something that might be of interest to people who suffer from hay fever as we're coming into hay fever season. Uh, some the papers just come out this week that has talked about discovering a new ohm, and I'm not talking <laughs> about the unit of electrical resistance. I'm talking <laughs> about you know, you know genome and biome and proteome, garden, garden ome, all those sorts of things. <laughs> so. Epigenome. <laughs> Uh, so the paper's just come out in, in Cell um, magazine and or journal and some scientists at Stanford have been monitoring over a couple of years the various, well, species in the, a couple of senses of the word that people tend to get exposed to. So they've called this this the exposome. Oh. So, mm, right. so, so yeah. we've got a new one to add to our collection. <laughs> this uh, has looked at 15% participants across a couple of years and it's collected actually, they worked out about 70 billion readouts of different things that people get exposed to. It could be bacteria or viruses or different chemicals and so on. Um, some Often there were some insecticides and all those sorts of things. Uh, and what they did was they they got these things. There was a little monitor that people were carrying around with them, and they were they took them back and then they sequenced 
or the DNA of all the organisms that were captured. They did uh, mass spectroscopy on the on the chemicals that they found and identified them all. So as I say, there's tens of thousands of different things that people found there. A lot of them were location specific. So, for example, one of the uh, researchers had uh, paint that didn't have a fungal an inhibitor in it, so they had a, a lot more fungus, for mm, example, yeah. in, mm. that they were exposed to. And uh, things like pets also tended to you know, feature prominently in, in, in the sorts of things that people were being exposed to. So what they, they're talking about, this is possibly being useful for people identifying allergies. If people have hay, flare, hay fever or allergies that flare up at certain times, they can really track exactly what it is mm. um, that's giving people the, the trouble rather than say, oh, yeah, it's pollen in a sort of a, a <laughs> yeah. general sense. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and they talk about maybe you know, might be able to get this into, say, wearable smart smartwatches <laughs> sort of thing further down, mm. the, uh, further down the track. So possibly some hope there for... Yeah, very nice. Yeah, and there's a lot of different applications of that as well, I can imagine. Mm -hmm. Like if you can have a way to measure what you're exposed to, like imagine the sort of ways that that could help epigenetic studies, right? Like there's so much there. Yeah, really cool stuff. Fewer tests done with like blood sampling and stuff like that. People afraid of needles, this report would be very helpful. Yeah, not invasive. Yeah, not invasive. All right, Sophie, you are lucky last. What piece of news have we got left? Um, I looked at her... I looked around and there's this really funny, funny paper <laughs> out now, and I know Holly looked at it as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had to fight for it. Yeah, <laughs> gave it to her. I was faster. Yeah, um, no, you weren't. I, I got it the day before. Well, I claimed it first. Sorry, it's true. It's that true. Counts. Um, it's about what happens when you expose octopuses to uh, MDMA. I've been wondering that for a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, on my like, mind. You, it kind of gets you mm. thinking: who comes up with these things and who funds these things? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Why MDMA do you want to know this? What? Yeah. Sorry, MDMA dealers or something. <laughs> Potentially want MDMA <laughs> octopuses. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Octopus are known to be really um, asocial and mm. really yeah, hostile. Yeah. So even when they're alone, if someone comes and intrude they will probably attack and kill. Yep. That's yep. So how asocial these animals are, except for one time a year when in their in mating season where they get all touchy-feely. Well, when, <laughs> when they're exposed to MDMA, they get the same behaviour, which is, well, it's nice. They don't give you eight hugs at once. <laughs> yeah, they give you so many hugs and they're yeah. so, so friendly and they expose all their uh, vulnerable parts like they do in mating season. They're oh, wow. really showing that they, they want affection and they're very playful. They even do like um, water acrobatics and water ballets <laughs> and, and just sort of, you know, do a they're, dance. they're high, okay? They're really <laughs> high. Really. Um, but what is interesting about this and probably why they got funding is that normally when we look at social behaviour, we uh, contribute to a very complex brain um, and, and a lot of like uh, higher developed organisms uh, things, but um, to see the same behaviour in octopuses is uh, well kind of surprising. But it's because we have the same have a gene that codes for the same protein, and mm. when it reacts with MDMA, serotonin is released. Serotonin is a, one of our happiness hormones. Um, so the fact that it's just our social behaviour when it comes to at least this part, our happiness, our touchy feely kind of stuff. Is all just controlled by chemicals, and even octopuses experience that. I love that. that. I love that. Do they love get that. addicted to gaming then? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I don't know say, if, yeah. it, if it, it sort of uh, hits the dopamine release as yeah, well. Like this is purely serotonin, I guess. Um, 
but well, you never know. You've never, I, I haven't tried. There's, there's so at many that. good papers coming out about octo, octopuses lately, though, because there was one a few months back. I think Chris KP did on the show about um, them potentially being someone thought they were aliens, yeah. like <laughs> the only example of aliens on the planet because they're so different to the rest of us. But uh, anyway, we've got to stop there. Uh, Sophie, Holly, Cam, thanks so much for coming in and doing the show thanks today. It's been us. fantastic having you guys in. And I think um, Jen, looking, she's looking a little bit proud over there, I suspect. Super proud, guys. <laughs> oh, yeah, thanks, no, Jen. You've Thank done really you. well. Uh, we will have our normal show back uh, next week, uh, which is really disturbing for me because I had to do absolutely no work this week. <laughs> week of. I did nothing. <laughs> I just literally got dressed and turned up, um, which is a far cry from my normal Einstein <laughs> go-go prep week, which can be a, a bit, bit uh, well, you know, it's enjoyable stuff. Well, that's but, why yeah. you, you came later than we did. Yeah, no, I just yeah. turned up. I, you know, I, d- I d- put in. a couple of CDs in, <laughs> slept in, you know, did nothing, you know, half-dressed. I mean, no, well, I dress like I normally do for radio, you know, so... <laughs> Everyone can see me, um, but no. Thanks so much for coming in because it really was. Uh, it was great hearing from from the three of you, and it just it just goes to show how how quickly you can uh, train up to uh, learn science communication skills and how effective that can be if um, if you put in the work. So thanks of so course. much. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, thanks. folks. Uh, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. We're going to have to hand over in a couple of minutes to uh, Cam and Matt Stebbin who are over there waiting to do eat it. Remember, you still have until this Wednesday to subscribe to Triple R and be in the running for all the prizes. So if you haven't already done that, we would very much appreciate your support but until next week i would say science is everywhere have a great sunday and we'll chat to you in seven days time this has been a pododcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au